0: Uh, this morning is Sunday. It is April 10th. Our message this morning is going to come out of John 10, and it will be called a mere man. Do you know what a mere cat is? No. Okay, good, because we're not talking about a mere cat. I figured when I asked people to, to define a okay. mere, okay, that's good.
1: <laughs>
0: we're not talking about the cat this morning. In English, mere is a term, and you see this displayed on the screen. Forgive me for not having slides this morning. You understand, uh, in the effort to install an LCD, we didn't have time to make slides for the LCD. So, um, that is what a definition up there. And it's for the adjective mere. It says, being nothing more than, as in a mere mortal. In other words, if I say he's a mere child it's implied that perhaps I expected him to be more than a child or that there's some higher level than a child. If I say he was a mere yellow belt, I'm implying that there are other levels that he didn't obtain. It's a backhanded way to say you are less than you are claiming to be or you are less than I expected you to be. It is a slight to be mere. If somebody says you're a mere infant, that shouldn't make you happy. If somebody says you're... A mere whatever, usually if the word mere comes in front of it, it's not a good thing. Uh, Other ways that this is defined has to do with purity. In other words, if something is found to have no contaminants in it, it's mere potassium, meaning there is nothing unexpected in it. What you have found is simply the normal substance that you would expect to find. Make sense? Well, you can see how that could be turned around. We're going to look at this morning in John 10, how Jesus was evidently claiming to be something more than just ordinary. And it upset the Pharisees. Now, this morning as we worshipped, was that not awesome? I can tell you at 5.45 this morning, Matthew P. Rowe had not gone to sleep yet. This did not come from careful planning through you know, the weeks, looking at what songs would move you emotionally at what time. There are no smoke and mirrors in here, no inventions of man. The Bible says it, and it's true. When you are weak, He is strong. God does not need your abilities. You get to lend your abilities to God. He doesn't need anything that you have. He made you because He delights in you. And it delights Him when you submit the members of your body to Him. you know that Romans 12 says to submit the members of your body, it is a spiritual act of worship? So what on earth does that mean? This is your spiritual act of worship. Romans 12 speaks about it as if it were a sacrifice. Now, the Jews were very familiar with sacrifice. What happened with the sacrifice? You had to go take something that was of value. Something that was of worth. I mean, you might have a hundred little goats out there, but you had to find the one that was most valuable, and it was a sacrifice. Friends, it's not a sacrifice if it's not valuable to you, if it's not hard to do. Your spiritual act of service, your spiritual sacrifice for Jesus, no longer involves the blood of bulls and goats. It involves you doing that which is hard for you to do, that which is of value. Can you think of anything more precious at about 4.30 in the morning when the alarm goes off and you hit snooze and you have exactly nine minutes before it goes off again than those nine minutes of sleep? Sacrifice is giving up those nine minutes of sleep for the kingdom of God. Or maybe you don't see an immediate need for the kingdom of God to donate your nine minutes of sleep, but you do see a brother or sister that could benefit from you turning on the coffee pot this morning. See, I talked to a brother this week and I, I hate these messages. I hate them like I hate the bitter herbs that you eat and I love it and I keep going back. Do you have any relationships like that in your life? You hate to love it and you love and hate it? Chocolate, Chocolate yeah. <laughs> this brother called and told me that he was studying servanthood. And I, well, boy, I was right there with him. Servanthood. Woo! Let's talk about it. Servanthood. Then he got to the end of the message and said, Servanthood in your own home. I said, Oh, Lord have mercy. Couldn't we make it in the church? Couldn't we make it at work? Couldn't we make it in our friends' and family's lives? He was talking about servanthood in the home. When you lay down something of value for the kingdom of God, you get rewarded in spiritual terms. This is how the writer of Hebrews can say, I have tasted of the powers of the age to come what we did this morning was taste of the powers of the age to come and friends it will not leave you the same way you came in once you have tasted and seen that the lord is good and i'm not talking about heard that he was good i'm not talking about saw that he moved in somebody else's life i'm talking about you tasted of the lord no longer somebody said this apple pie is awful good you ought to try it no longer that you saw a smile on somebody else's face and could tell you got a taste and you've got to have more. There's a special connection that happens when you pour yourself out for Jesus. A special connection. He meets you where you are. Too often and too long, the church sits back self-centered. Self-centered and selfish, doing nothing for no one, praying, bless me, bless me, bless me. You know, Keith Green wrote songs in the late 70s and 80s about it, and they still move me today. Bless me, Lord, is all I ever hear. He wrote a song about the church that was asleep in the light, praying, bless me, bless me. And they couldn't even get out of bed on Sunday mornings. They said he was returning and act like he would never return. Keith put a line in that song that he felt like the Spirit moved him. Those pictures in the background are going to get you all, aren't they? (laughs)
1: Keith put a... Keith
0: put a line in that song that they begged him to take out. said, if you won't come to me every day, don't bother coming at all. Boy, that's powerful. We serve the kind of God that the Scripture says is envious intensely for your time, for you, for your love. We have the idea, well, something's better than nothing. Not with God, and He is an all-or-nothing God. In this little church, you remember I told y'all Wednesday that a couple Methodist I didn't tell y'all they were Methodists, I'm sorry, a couple pastors were sitting around discussing how dead their churches were, how their churches were more interested in politics than in spiritual things, and they said the only churches they'd ever seen that were different were very small churches and charismatic and Pentecostal churches. Well, guys, that's you. You have a lot to live up to. You have to be more excited about Jesus. You have to serve Jesus with all yeah, I can't believe these pictures are going on behind me.
1: There,
0: there here we go. There, y'all read that definition up there. The gonna be they're all Israel pictures. That one just happened to be Gary Williams without a shirt on. Oh. Yeah, he'll love that. Get this C D, Gary. They love you, brother. They're just jealous. They love you. So we're going to John Tim. He's got to be God for you 100% of the time. We need to quit dating God. You know, we need to quit picking Him up on Wednesday nights, Sunday mornings, putting on our nice clothes, showing up at the door, knocking, being very polite, you know, getting in the car, putting on the seatbelt, driving the speed limit, and then dropping God off and going to live like a hellion and a whoremonger. We need to not do that. I'm not suggesting you guys are out all night in the bars. That's not what I'm talking about. We need to be God conscious every day, all day. You need to do that. Do you know that Jesus tore a veil to show you that you had access to God 100% of the time? The Mount of Transfiguration, we've talked about this, but I want you to hear it this morning before we get into our subject matter. The Mount of Transfiguration, was Jesus Jesus before He went there? Was, Was He claiming to be the divine presence of God on earth before He went to the Mount of Transfiguration? Did He say He was the Son of God? Was He the same Jesus afterwards? Still looked like a man? Still did all of the things that Jesus did before and after? There are miracles before and after the Mount of Transfiguration. What was different on that mountain? They could see His glory. He had it before. He had it afterwards. But then, they could see it. In fact, Peter got so excited, he said, Hey, it's good that we be here. Why don't we build some shelters? We'll we'll stay right here. Peter didn't know what he was saying. You and I have a right, a God-given right that the Muslims don't have. We have a God-given right that the people of faith that it was given to most of don't recognize. We have a God-given right to live in the presence of God 100% of the time. And we give it up too easy. We've bought into this idea that we're so full of sin, we're so falling short, that we have to beg, plead, cry, work ourselves into the presence of God. It does not have to be this way. Jesus said, I go away and I come back, and I'm preparing a place for you that I can take you to be where I am. Now, I realize other people think that means other things. Jesus is talking about I'm making a way for you to live in the presence of God, which is where He is, was, and always will be. Having said that, turn with me to John 10. Some pages turning? No, y'all are already there. Y'all will forgive me. It's the first time I have pulled an all-nighter in a few years. And having had no sleep, I'm going to fumble around for a few scriptures this morning. I hope that doesn't detract too much from your spiritual edification this morning. And if that LCD projector falls out of the ceiling, I will cry. But we'll, we'll get p to catch it. Y'all in John 10? Yes. Okay. So far in John 10, we and I, I won't recap it all for you because I know that starts to bore you guys and I do it at almost the beginning of every message. But remember, we are somewhere after the Feast of Tabernacles where Jesus has announced Himself as the light of the world, where He's begun to tell the Pharisees, you do what your Father does and I do what my Father does. There's a difference between us guys. We're sometime after that Feast of Tabernacles. We're after the healing of the man that was born blind. And do you remember what Jesus said that the man born blind was? An opportunity. Every obstacle in your life is an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. I couldn't tell you that enough. Jesus is going to follow that pattern. It's going to happen again. Because in John 10, He begins to set the stage again. Because what Jesus did over and over and over in His ministry was He displayed the very work of God so that when you looked at Him, you saw God's work being done as if it were God Himself. Have you ever wondered about prophecy? And I'll try not to digress too far here. Somebody bring me back if I get out on a ladder. Have you ever wondered about prophecy? Well, was that God speaking or not? What does the Bible tell you? How, what do you do with prophecy? You judge it, right? You judge it, you listen, you weigh it against the Word, but ultimately you see if it comes true. Now, if it comes true, was that God speaking to you? Well, yeah. If it comes true, it was God speaking to you. The work of God is kind of like this. Was that God? Well, if it is the kind of work that God would do, opening blind eyes, yeah, that was God doing it. doesn't matter whether it was Peter's shadow that passed over somebody. doesn't matter whether it was a handkerchief that Paul prayed over. God is responsible for that. So when people do the work of God, you are seeing a reflection of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? You are seeing God's work reflected in their behavior. The Bible says that Moses split the Red Sea. Yet we know that Moses didn't crawl out into the middle of the Red Sea and begin to divide water molecules. Right? Moses was an instrument who stretched out his hand so that there would be a visual representation that God, who cannot be seen, was doing something. When you think about Jesus, think about him in this way. He is the representation of God always, and the perfect representation. There was not anything that he did at any time that was not what God wanted you to see about God. Does that make sense? Well, in what way was He God? That's the way He's God. Right? And if there's a thousand other theological reasons that He's God, this one is enough. And this is where Jesus lays His his claim. Because from here on out, when He makes references to divinity, when He says, the Father and I are one, nobody can snatch you out of my Father's hand. He's great. (laughs) And He's greater than everybody. And by the way, Father and I are one. And they get mad and realize what He's saying. Jesus always falls back on the defense. What do you see me doing? I'm doing the work of God here. Why don't you believe me? In their law, in the law that was to instruct us about the way of God, Moses wrote the words about a prophet who was to come. You have to listen to him. You have to listen to him or you'll be cut off. <clears throat> By the way, if you want to know whether somebody's a prophet or not, if what they say comes to pass, they're a prophet. If what they say does not come to pass, they're a false prophet and go ahead and stone them. Jesus passed the test. He was a perfect representation. Since you can't see God, since you can't wrap your hands around God, since you couldn't lay your hand upon His shoulder, as Job said, say, hey, let us talk for a while so that I can understand you. Look me in the eyes, God, when we're talking so that I can see what's going on with you. Let me see your facial expressions. Let me see your body gestures. Since you couldn't do that, God appointed a man... That He declared to be the Word in the flesh because every thought that God had, every action that God wanted to express, this man did perfectly. Y'all getting the picture of who Jesus is? If God looked in the mirror, what He would see would be Jesus. Make sense? So in John 10, Jesus holds Himself up just like God. says, I am the Good Shepherd. Man, I'll lay my life down for you because I love you. I've got a perfect kind of love. He's Lays of course for one shepherd and one flock. Talking about sheep that are not of the fold. And we covered all of that Wednesday night. And now we're at a place where the crowd is divided. This is the third time in the book of John that the crowd was utterly divided. And each time the Bible mentions them being divided, whether it's in John 7, John 9, or in John 10, they're divided because of something the people saw Jesus do. Some said, this guy can't be God. He can't be of God. He can't be a good guy. He's healing on the Sabbath. He's doing something that God says don't do. And others say, well, if he's not of God, how did he do this? And there was a dichotomy here. There was a problem. Some said it doesn't line up with what we know and think about God. And others said, how could he do it if he wasn't God? And the crowd was always divided. We're in that situation. That's what's just happened in the 21st verse. And we're going to pick up in the 22nd. You remember I told you <clears throat> that we passed tabernacles? Does anybody know what month tabernacles occurs in? Oh, nobody listens to... I can't say that, can I? Nobody listens to that famous guy, big portly fellow with the slick back hair in San Antonio, huh? He goes to Israel every year in one month because he says Jesus is coming back in that month. He's probably right. I'm not saying He's not. Y'all don't know, huh? September. The Feast of Tabernacles is in September. So September happened, and now when we pick up in the 22nd verse, the Bible's going to say that it's a certain feast. This feast corresponds with our Christmas time. It gives you an idea of our timeline in John. We're now in the winter. We pass from September right on into the winter, and we're at the Feast of Purim. So let me read you the first couple verses. Do you want to know what Purim is, or do you already know? Okay, I'll tell you what it is. Let me read you a couple verses. Then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. Your footnote there will say Purim. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now this is interesting. What did the Jews expect the Christ to do? I laid out for you three very specific things early on in John. Yeah, that was Sylvester Sloan on that slide, huh? There's one that says Cassidy too, by the way. That's going to be distracting. I'm sorry. I don't know what to do about that. What did the Jews expect of their Messiah? First and foremost, before we get into the prophet or the messianic age, what do you think was on the majority of the Jews' mind about the Messiah coming? What do you think they expected? Was it to go to heaven? No. National vindication. I love a resident theologian. He knows it. National vindication. They wanted Rome out of their life. They said, oh, we've, we've heard what Daniel said. There'll be four kingdoms, and then the Messiah will come, and He will crush this fourth kingdom. They knew what had been prophesied, and they were waiting. You know why? They were oppressed, and they had counted the kingdoms. They said, we've been through Babylon. We've been through Medo-Persia. We've been through Greece. Now we're Roman, and the kingdom of God's got to be set up now. That's why they're always asking about the kingdom of God. Notice, they were not asking about rapture. They were not asking about dying and going to heaven. You will never see those questions come from a Jewish apostle. You will see over and over and over, are you then going to restore the kingdom? Jesus talked about advancing the kingdom. He talked about the kingdom being on earth as it is in heaven. All of those things. And we've perverted it because we've left our Hebrew roots. But that being laid aside, we're now, we've left tabernacles, we're in the Feast of Dedication. Dedication, that's Purim. What is being dedicated? Keep it in mind now, they're all waiting for a Messiah to do something. Overthrow these Romans. Well, why do you think they're asking right now, tell us plainly? Tell us plainly, are you the Christ or not? Because the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of Purim, to purify, Purim, probably not where it comes from, but it's easy to remember, celebrates a time period when Judas... You'll like this. Judah, Judas, Judah, Maccabeus. Judah the hammer, his name means, came in and drove out the Romans and purified the temple. This happened somewhere around 160... Forgive me my dates a little off. Between 160 and 170 B.C. I believe it's 165 B.C. See, Antiochus Epiphanes, a guy who was a Syrian, whose name meant God manifest, had heard that the Jews were celebrating. Do you know why they were celebrating? The rumor had traveled all the way to Jerusalem. Antiochus Epiphanes, this great oppressor, he's died. He didn't really die, but that was the rumor. And the Jews, they, they got excited, and so they, they had a little party. They, they had a party in Jerusalem because they heard this guy was dead. Well, when news got to Antiochus, who was very much alive... He was not very happy. So do you know what he did to retaliate? He came, killed 40,000 of them in a single day, and then took a very fat female pig. Now what do you know about Jews? They don't like pork, right? Somebody said, and now Jews and Muslims, totally different things, but just for fun, I thought I'd tell you. I had a suggestion given to me by uh, a dear family member the other day who told me, uh, He could solve the whole Muslim problem. said all we needed to do was slaughter a pig and throw pig's blood all over the Muslim towns and they'd be scared to go out. Or any time you saw a suicide bomber, uh, when you gathered their remains, bury it with pigs. They'd quit doing that. But that being laid aside. People that had uh, a dietary code based on the Mosaic Covenant. Not right. Not the right way to say it. Based on the... Dietary code in Leviticus. Loathed pork. Because pork is unclean, one of the most obviously unclean animals from a scriptural standpoint. I didn't mean to get off on that Muslim thing. We're talking about Jews, the people of God, not the... Uh, yeah, the... Yeah, the, the Muslims. We'll just leave it there. Antichrist, poor of Babylon, all of those things. Okay. So, the Jews then... Antiochus Epiphanes, God manifest, shows up at the temple. He kills a pig on the altar of God. Not a cool thing, right? Then he forces the Jewish leaders to line up and each take a little bite of the pig. So not only was the temple unclean now, and they say that it was unclean for some period of three years. Took took a little while to clean. <laughs> three years. But now the people are ceremonially unclean. And humiliated. So, what is Purim? What is dedication? It is the time period where the wicked, Antichrist type figure was driven out and the temple was purified. So, they celebrate uh, Purim. Uh, I keep saying Purim. Dedication, Purim. They celebrate this December 18th, and uh, dedication be. Hanukkah. I keep saying Purim. Purim is Esther. I'm sorry. I didn't sleep enough last night. Y'all forgive me. didn't sleep at all last night. Hanukkah. Fourteen days from December 18th to the end of December where the temple was being dedicated. Those of you that are taking notes, scratch out Purim. That was something that happened not that long ago. It was on our calendar last month. That was Esther and her uh, beauty queen pageant. Hanukkah. Hanukkah is when the temple was uh, totally purified. So from there, that's why we have the candles lit. That's why you see the celebrations in Jewish windows. But why do you think they're asking Jesus? See, I, I got off on a wrong word there. I'm sorry, Purim. It's really Hanukkah. Why do you think they're asking Jesus at this time?
1: Tell us plainly.
0: Are you the Christ or not? Because they have in their mind a figure like Judah Maccabeus. They've got a figure in their mind, the hammer, the great political leader who would come in and purify their temple from the Romans. Because in Jesus' day, in Jesus' day on the side of the temple, if I had time, I'd show you a slide. There was a uh, a fortress on the side of the temple to Diana. The Romans were overlooking the temple court. They were there and it was an unclean presence and they were occupied and this rubbed in the Jewish people's face every day that they were being occupied. So they're ready for the Messiah, but what kind of Messiah do they want? They want a Judas Maccabeus who will come in and drive out this foreign power and purify their land. That's what they wanted. And they're saying, tell us plainly, are you that guy? Now are we all straight? I got a CD that's going to go out from this, and y'all are going to go out with this message. This feast of dedication is Hanukkah, not Purim. Purim is something from the Book of Esther. Y'all with me? Okay, everybody straight. Then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple area, walking in Solomon's colonnade. Incidentally, why would he say it's winter? If he's telling you it's the Feast of Dedication, you already know what month it's in, don't you? It's not more than one Hanukkah. So why is he saying it's winter? A lot of the uh, commentaries in this area say that the word for winter is not so much just designating a a month. It's designating a kind of weather. Do you know what I'm saying? And in Israel, especially... In the Jerusalem area, it does get cold, but not cold like in North Dakota. What winter really is, is cold, rainy weather. So he's walking in the colonnade. Got me? A covered porch area. Isn't that interesting that John put that in? Walking in a covered area. The Jews gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the anointed one, if you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe the miracles. I'm sorry, you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. What's He talking about, you're not my sheep? He has just taught, and we taught on a Wednesday night, every shepherd's known by His sheep. They'll hear His voice. They recognize Him, and they go where He says to go. Jesus has been teaching. They're not receptive to His teaching. Jesus has been talking about taking the sheep from this pen and sheep from another pen and having one flock. That's a message the Jewish leadership could never accept. They didn't care what a good shepherd He was. They didn't care whether He fed 5,000 people with just a handful of food. They didn't care that He was fulfilling the prophecies of Ezekiel because they didn't like the message. They wanted Judas Maccabeus. You understand? My son has a friend in school who, when he heard his name, was excited, heard Judah's name because his little buddy is a Jew. And he grew up hearing stories about Judas Maccabeus. And he knows that Judah's name is a derivative of that. And to him, it's like talking about Jesus because this was a great deliverer figure. This was a great Messiah figure. Does that make sense? It's the Messiah they wanted, not the Messiah they got. I did tell you, but you did not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now. This is one of those scriptures that's hotly debated. I'm not interested in debates. I think that a plain reading of this will tell you. Jesus didn't say we're the same person. He didn't say there is no Father, it's really me. He didn't say any of those things. He said I and the Father are one. We're one in spirit. We're oneness in being. That's how Wycliffe said it. They're oneness in being. Today, those terms mean so many different things to religious factions. Everything that Jesus did, which is what Jesus is talking about, the miracles that I did, everything, everything that Jesus did is exactly what God wanted done. Forgive me for saying it this way because it's not the right way to say it, but you'll understand what I mean. If God were there, if the Father were there, it's what the Father would have done in that situation. Well, the Father was there. He was just in Jesus. Does that make sense? That's how they're one. You know, the Bible says, how can two walk together unless they're in agreement? You, you know that? Jesus and the Father never had a problem walking together because they were always in perfect agreement. The only reason that this is hard for us to wrap our minds around is because we're not in perfect agreement. We like parts of what God wants us to do and we don't like other parts. So we can't imagine that there's never a conflict. Jesus delighted in the Father's will to the point where He had no problem laying down His life. He considered it a joy. He laid down His life for the joy set before Him. Because it was a joy to do the Father's will. His purpose was to show that He did exactly what the Father wanted. That's why He's declared to be the visible image of the invisible God. Does that make y'all uncomfortable? uh, We could just take the easy way out and say Jesus is God because the Bible says it, huh? Jesus is God and the Bible does say it. But this is the way that He's God. My sheep listen to My voice. I know them, and they know Me, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of My Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus' stated mission that He said over and over and over, that the light shone in the darkness and the light was the life of men. Jesus came to bring those who were His own the power of life because it's what God promised and what God wanted done. They were one in this effort. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone Him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone Me? Stoning in the Bible. Who gets stoned? Yeah, who gets stoned? That's a great 20th century question, huh?
1: Judah, who gets stoned?
0: Yeah. People that got stoned in the Bible were people that committed capital crimes. To get stoned by the community in Israel meant that you had done something abhorrent. For instance, one way to get stoned... That would be a legitimate way to get stoned in the Bible, to get killed by rocks in the Bible, would be to entice your neighbor to worship another God. That would get you stoned. Another way to get stoned. Would be to be a rebellious teenager who is incorrigible, whose parents could not control him. That would get you stoned. Another way to get stoned. Yeah, that's half of our generation, is it not? Another way you could get stoned. You could be aching. God say, I do not want you to do this specifically. You do it. You hide it. You make the leader of your country come and find you by way of divination from the Holy Ghost. Divination, that's a bad word. Uh, Discernment from the Holy Ghost to find you. That, That will get you stoned. Jesus hears, sees... When he talks about his Father, when he talks about doing God's work, that what they want to do when they're confronted with the reflection of God is kill God. They want to kill Him for doing what God wants done. So the problem's not with Him, it's with God. God in Him. He he didn't fall back on, hey guys, I'm God in the flesh, why are you trying to kill me? He doesn't fall back on, well, you know, uh, before Abraham was, I am, I'm eternal. Why, why are you trying to kill me? He doesn't say, hey, I'm the Word of God who's become flesh. Why are you trying to kill me? He doesn't say, I'm the promised Messiah who was to come, who has the power of life. Why are you trying to kill me? He says, I have shown you the work of God. For which one of these works are you going to kill me? You're accusing me of something worthy of death. You're accusing me of a crime. You're accusing me of something that deserves death. And what I am showing you is what the Father would do. Do you see the great paradox here? How can these men sit in the seat of Moses? How can these men be the leaders of Israel? How can these men be in charge of God's prince, Israel, the prince with God, and hate God's work? Now, mind you, not all the people did. Remember, on three occasions, they were divided over this. Do not get in your mind that all the Jews were this way. Their leadership was because they loved their positions of power. And they hated what they saw Him do. Jesus displayed the very work of God in His life. And they hated it. And when they wanted to kill Him, He said, for which one of these things are you killing me? Do you remember His defense when John the Baptist began doubting? What did He say? Go back and tell John I'm the Messiah? No. Go back and tell John, talk to the Father, He'll tell you I'm the Messiah? No. What did He do? He said, go back and tell John what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Always Jesus' defense of His ministry, defense of who He is, is what you see Him doing. You know why this is a hard concept for us? Why it's so contrary to us? We grow up telling our children and hearing from our parents. Do what I say, not what you see me do. We live in a society that doesn't expect anybody to live out the Gospel. Simply profess it. But the Jewish society was not this way. The Jewish society was functionally based. It was based on the idea that what you did was what mattered. Not what you said you believed. Jesus is appealing to that. He's telling them what He did. In verse 31, Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone Him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. You, a mere man, claim to be God. Remember what I you. the definition of mere was. Y'all can talk to me. It won't hurt my feelings. Being nothing more than you, nothing more than an ordinary guy, claim to be God. They understood that when Jesus said, I'm doing the work of the Father, He was claiming to be the reflection of the Father. Claiming to be one with God. And they didn't like it. They said, you are an ordinary guy. Now, friends, weigh the evidence. Have you seen anything that indicates Jesus was just an ordinary guy? Who'd ever heard of opening somebody's eyes who was born blind before? Who had ever seen a man, John 5, who had been paralyzed for 38 years get up and walk? Who had ever seen such things? And they said, He's an ordinary guy. Now, when people look at you, they might see an ordinary person. Just like when they looked at Jesus, they saw an ordinary person. But the Bible declares us to be so much more than ordinary people. We are not mere anything. In fact, mere indicates that you looked at something and were somewhat disappointed in what you found. I'd expect to find a bar of gold in here and it's just regular old chalk. We're just the opposite. The Bible says you look like a jar of clay, but inside is gold. All-surpassing power of God. Paul said that about us. The Bible portrays Jesus as the very Godhead in bodily form. In you, having His divine substance in you. They said, you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, People are quick to point out sometimes they don't like the way it says your law. Many of the ancient manuscripts don't have that. Well, apparently enough of them do to make it in your Bible, huh? Is it not written in your law? Why would He say that? Why would He say, is it not written in your law? Was it not Jesus' law too? Yeah, He's the author. Was it not the law of the entire Jewish nation? So why does He look at them and say, is it not written in your law? He's saying, guys, you should know this. I'm not telling you something that's secret. I'm not bringing you a new teaching, a new revelation. You, of all people, your own law says this. This be like a foreign national coming here and lecturing you on the Constitution. It says, is it not written in your own law? I have said, you are gods. Oh, stop the presses. Is Jesus into a New Age cultic teaching? Pastors. Church is scared to even read this. I have said you are God. That's gotta mean something else. It's got a little G. It's got a little G. You know? We're we're all worried. Since I have said you're all God. Jesus, has he become a Mormon? Mormons love John 10, by the way. I mean, the, the whole sheep and the other fold thing. So, what on earth is he talking about? How could we find out what Jesus is talking about? Anybody have a wild guess? How many books are in your Bible? Sixty-six. That's how many are in yours? You don't have a Catholic Bible with you today. Okay. Sixty-six books in your Bible. Anybody know which book He's quoting? Because He said it's written in your law. Well, why don't we go back and read where it was written? Isn't it reasonable that if Jesus is quoting it, we ought to go back and see what He was talking about before we just discount it or say that it means something other than what it means? Turn to Psalm 82. Jesus has been claiming that His works show He is who He said He is. Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? He said, man, the miracles I show you, they show you who I am. But you don't believe them. Psalm 82. Y'all there? God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust? Y'all look at your footnote. Anybody in here got a Thompson chain? (laughs) Look at your footnote. What does it say by you? You is plural. Would somebody please explain to me how you put you in the plural? You can only do that in the South. It's y'all. God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. How long will y'all, speaking of those people he just called gods, defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked, Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. And the foundations of the earth are shaken. For I read the rest, what is God saying? He's saying, I've declared that y'all are God's. And yet, you do not do what God says to do. You don't declare. You don't take up the cause of the weak. You don't strengthen the fatherless. You don't look after those that God would look after. He said you walk around in darkness. You know nothing. Isn't it interesting that John opens his book by saying the light shone in the darkness. They didn't understand it. And they didn't overcome it. And that light was life. And they didn't get it. See, We had a whole nation. What's a prince, by the way? we got a prince in England right now. Not my prince, but he's somebody's prince. Prince in England. What's that mean? He's a son of the king. He's heir to what? To a throne. So if you are a prince with God, if you are Israel, what does that mean? It means one day you will reign with God. This was the hope of the Jewish nation. That's why they say at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are we going to rule with you? Are you going to be God with us and us be with you? Are we going to rule the nations and your law go out? Is that going to happen? The problem is the little princes, the little gods, the little chips off the big block didn't act anything like Him. And that was a problem. It's a problem because if you're going to rule, you have to be worthy to rule. Paul said, if you are given a trust, like a trust fund, some of you may know what that is, I personally don't. If you've been given a trust fund, there's usually a time period before you inherit it. What's it for? To show that you know how to handle it. That you mature. Well, this was their maturing process. And God says, you walk around in darkness. You act like fools. You don't know what you're doing. That's what he was telling them. It's interesting that Paul speaks about this time period for us as a time period where we must prove faithful. Apparently, it's not a done deal yet, even for us. Pick back up in Psalm 82, verse 6. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. To be a son of God in this sense does not just mean the offspring of God. The offspring of God is anything that He made. I mean, if you want to get right down to it, you could call a grasshopper the offspring of God. But that's not what it means in this sense. We're not talking about heavenly beings that did this or that. We're not talking about the grasshoppers. We're talking about those unique people on the planet that were called to be just like God and had been given the information to teach them to do so, i.e., special revelation. See, they knew what was required of them. They knew what they were called to. It was their destiny. And they were
1: not living up
0: to it. Much like the church today, we don't call ourselves gods, do we? Now, that's some other weirdos in California that do that. What do we call ourselves? Christians. And... What pray tell is Christian? Little Christ, a chip. You might say Christ with a little C, not God with a big G. We got God with a little G in the Psalms. Well, if you want to call yourself a Christian and keep it in the same analogy, this would be Christ with a little C. But do we act like Christ? Do we do the work of the Father? Do others look at our lives and see something more than the ex- than ordinary? We're called to be extraordinary. People should look and say there's no way he can do that. There's no way that can be done. And you look at him and say nevertheless God and it gets done. People say I don't know how. There's no way. It can't happen. They can't succeed. And it does because God is with you. You know what it requires though? Requires the kind of attitude that Jesus displayed. They said, Jesus, Herod's looking for you. He said, you tell that fox, I will press on today, tomorrow, and the next day. We're talking about the kind of attitude that Winston Churchill took up some thousands of years later and said, never, never, never quit. You know the guy got paid good money for a commencement speech? After World War II, he was brought over here to an Ivy League school. For a commencement speech, this is when you encourage the graduates. You give them some bit of life's wisdom, usually an hour, hour and a half long, because this is going to be what propels them in their future, in their career. After taking a steam liner all the way from England to here, he probably wasn't entirely sober, knowing what we know about Winston. Stands up, walks up to the microphone. Everybody's bracing for a wonderful speech. He says, never, never, never. Give up. And he turned around and walked off. Friends, that's pretty profound. You want to get somewhere in Jesus? Quit giving up. Quit giving up every time you don't get what you want right away. Quit giving up. Take the attitude that says, I will press on today, tomorrow, and the next day. Take that attitude. Let's finish Psalm 82 and we'll move on. Y'all still awake? You still with me? There's no excuse to sleep this morning. I have not been asleep since 12 o'clock day before yesterday. Surely you can stay awake with me a few minutes. Huh, friends? You're
1: young.
0: I'm young. You know what? The Word says they will run and not grow weary. They will walk and will not grow faint. He will lift them up on eagle's wings. He will elevate you. He will accelerate you. And He will compel you. That's what, that's what the Word says. And I am just stupid enough to believe it. Maybe it's because I'm young or maybe it's because I believe the Word you know what a biblical fast is, by the way? Oh, it's not eating. No. It's doing without something so that somebody else will have something. That's what a biblical fast is. That's what loosens the chains of the oppressed. That's what takes up the cause of the widow and the orphan. Don't think that by denying yourself a hamburger, you've done anything for God. I just want to tell you that. He doesn't care whether you eat a hamburger or a burrito. He really doesn't. Now that we're Gentiles and this side of the cross, he doesn't care whether you eat shrimp and crawfish. You can go have a pig if you want to eat a pig. He cares about you doing without so that somebody else will do be with because it shows faith. You know what it really shows? I was talking to somebody about their finances the other day. I don't want anybody's money. I don't want it. I could care it. it's a burden to me actually. I could figure out what to do with it. But do you know what it shows? When you give away something that is a sacrifice, something of value to you, it shows that you believe God is taking care of you. And so you're looking out for someone else's interest. Same thing applies to everything else in your life. Every form of servanthood. That is a biblical fast. That is what God honors. Psalm 82. I have said you are gods. You're all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere Men, you will fall like every other ruler. That word ruler, Israel means ruler with God, prince with God. Interchangeable. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. What a confusing psalm. I am so glad that Jesus came along and explained it. They accuse him of something horrid like blasphemy. But his very own. Actions showed that He was the little God. He was the one who did exactly what His Father wanted. And so God was pleased with Him. And you know what? He would not die like a mere man. Some ordinary man. The world wants to relegate you to something ordinary. God calls you extraordinary. If the natural realm is where we live every day, and Jesus is supernatural, and you're in Him, what does that tell you about you? You have to be a plane above ordinary. You have to be a step above the natural. We are extraordinary. We are supernatural. That's what God's called us to be. You've tasted of that age. It's time to walk in it. It's time to live in it. You say, but I don't see it all of the time. I prayed and it didn't happen. Don't give up. Look at Herod and say, I will press in today and tomorrow and the next day. And I will not stop. You see that sign right there? As the time drew near for his return to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. What does it mean to be resolute? It means that you have a purpose. You set your will and you do not back up. Is this not consistent with what Hebrews says? If you shrink back, He will not be pleased with you. You know, it's funny. This is a pattern. Quitting is a pattern. And so is being resolute. It's a pattern in your life. I began some work yesterday at 12.30 in the afternoon. My wife is much wiser than I am, and everybody knows this. She knew at 2 o'clock. There's no way it was going to be done when I said it was. And at 5 o'clock. And at 8 o'clock. And at 10 o'clock. And at 12 o'clock and 2 o'clock and 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock and 5 o'clock and 6 o'clock in the a.m. You know what she never asked me? Not one time. You're going to stop? You're going to quit? You know why she didn't ask me that? Because she knows. There is not a chance that hot place would have to freeze over before I was going to set my mind to complete this and not get it done. He said, well, that's foolish. You should have gotten sleep. You should have done that. I'm not about to set an example in my life of quitting because I know it's a habit. And it never stops. You start saving a little of yourself for this and a little of yourself for that. And pretty soon, you have saved a lot of self. The men of God in the Bible poured themselves out like drink offerings. When I was a football player, and Matthew can re- remember this, and he's probably a much better human being than I was, we'll pick on Brad Lively. Everybody loves Brad. Brad didn't know what it was to save something of himself for later. Me and a couple of the other guys would take off running with the running backs during sprints. We know who was supposed to come in first, second, and third. So all you got to do is brother-in-law it a little bit. As long as number one comes in number one and two comes in two and three comes in three, you don't have to run quite as hard. You just come in in the right order and nobody knows. It all looks relative. The problem with that is Mr. Lively didn't know how to play that game. He gave it his all every Time. God is looking for people that have tasted of this power, that have tasted of the age to come, and will not save something for later. Pour your life out. What else do you have to spend it on? Friends, if this life is like the butterfly that lands on a tree, lives eight days, and thinks he owns the tree that has been there for hundreds of years, what are we saving ourselves for? I love Reinhard Bunker's attitude, and truthfully, I don't know how to do it all of the time. I'm trying. And I'm not preaching this as somebody perfect. I, innumerable number of screw-ups this week. Okay? But Reinhardt says, you pray for the will of God and I will run you over because I am doing the will of God. I love that attitude. Pick a direction and move. Find something to do for Jesus. Love on somebody. How hard could it be? When we do this, we show ourselves to be a reflection of God. Jesus spent His whole life doing it. And you know what? He didn't have to strain for it. And he left behind him 12 men. One of them was the devil. Eleven men. Eleven men who got that in them. I, I will reflect God in my actions. I will do the will of God. And I believe that Jesus will empower me to do it, so I'm going to do it. So that Paul echoes these words, Jesus Christ has made me confident. Made me confident. And so they went forth and did it, and they changed the known world. There's 12 of us. They changed the known world. We're just trying to start with this block. to our families. They changed the world because they had it in their heart to reflect God 100% of the time. You don't ever get out of the ring in Christianity. Sometimes the devil will slip a little bag over your head. You get beaten on for a while. A little rope-a-dope. But you never get out of the ring. Might as well throw punches while you're here. You might as well. You can't get out of the rain. To crawl out is to crawl back to your vomit. If you just stay in the fight and throw a few punches, He'll credit you with victory. Y'all back in John 10? Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone Him. We get to verse 33. We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law I have said you are gods? If He called them gods to whom the Word of God came, and the Scripture cannot be broken, what about the One whom the Father set apart as His very own and sent into the world? What a bold statement. I'm the One the Father set apart and sent into the world. Why on earth can He make that statement? Because He's the only One opening blind eyes. He's the only One causing people to stand up and walk. And you know what? When you reflect God's presence in your life, you can make bold statements. Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's Son? Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. That is not a question. Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. That is a command. Do not. This is an imperative command coming from the word imperial. It is a direct command. Do not believe me unless... Boy, how would you like to be able to say that? You're giving your testimony. You're talking to somebody about Jesus and say, do not believe me unless you see the Father reflected in my life. Boy, that would make you nervous, wouldn't it? I think, golly, could a human being ever say that? Can you think of when he said it? He said, you yourselves know how holy and righteous and blameless we were when we were among you. said it to the Corinthian church. I shudder when I hear that. I think, my oh God, Paul, you yourself know how holy, blameless and righteous we were? It doesn't sound like Paul had that old southern denominational background that taught him, no, we all sin every day. There's no way around it. Changing God's grace and for a license for immor- immorality. Paul said, you yourselves know how holy blameless and righteous we were when we were among you. Wow! I want to be like Paul because he was like Jesus. But if I do it, but if I do it, though you do not believe Me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in Me and I am in the Father. Again, they tried to seize Him, but He escaped their grasp. There's so many miracles recorded in John, He doesn't even tell you how. He escaped the grasp. But I somehow don't think this is like two little kids playing flag football and one is all-time quarterback and Jesus ran away arching his back, narrowly missing their grasp or lunges at him. I suspect like so many other times he walked right through the crowd and they were unable to touch him because his father was with him. Then Jesus went back across to the Jordan, the Jordan, to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. I have a couple points before we close. Many believed in Jesus. Friends, this ministry will always have a Jewish focus, though there are no Jews in here, because the Gentile church is off base. We have our ideas from our movies, from years of wrong thinking that all Jews rejected Jesus, that all Jews were down on Jesus. This is probably the fifth, sixth time in the book of John, you see many are believing in Him. When John says the Jews, he's speaking of the Jewish leadership. The same way when somebody in France says the Americans did thus and so. It doesn't mean you left your house and did it. It meant the ambassadors, the delegates did it. Another thing. John the Baptist. <clears throat> Did he reflect the Father? He said what the Father told him to say. He came, he fulfilled the purpose that the Father had for him to fulfill. And it didn't include a single miracle. So when I'm talking about reflecting the Father, when I am talking about your actions displaying the work of God, this doesn't mean that you're walking across Lake Houston. It doesn't mean that at your next office function. You go up to the Kentwood water jug and turn it into wine. It doesn't mean that the next time you see a blind person, you have to walk over and spit in his face and take the dust from the ground and make him some eyeballs. It means that you do exactly what the Father tells you to do. Well, how do I know that? He put His Spirit in you as a deposit. Teaching you. Showing you. Developing you. So that the word in Romans 8 could be as many as are led by the Spirit are sons of God. By the way, sons of God in that sense goes right back to Psalm 82. I have called you gods, sons of God. Jesus called himself son of God. His defense for that was Psalm 82. Isn't that interesting? Little chips off the bigger block. You're going to run out here and say, Eric said we're gods, we're into Mormon teaching. You are supposed to be a little chip off the bigger block. This is why Peter says you have his divine substance in you. I hope you learned something in John ten. You are not a mere man. Incidentally, quite a few times in the scripture, mere shows up. You can see some of them broadcast on the wall here. In John seven twenty four, look at this. We're closing, but I just want to show you this. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Now, what would that mean in light of what we're saying? Stop looking at things like an ordinary man. Stop looking at things only in the natural realm. So, Do I judge or not judge? The answer to it is you cannot judge by mere appearances. You're to judge as led by the Spirit. As you move on, See in John ten thirty three, they called him a mere man. In Romans, chapter two, verse three, so when you a mere man pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? The people he was talking to were supposed to be in the faith, supposed to be acting as extraordinary men, supernatural men, and they were acting like mere men. The same thing Psalm eighty two was accusing them of. In Corinthians 3, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Mere infants in Christ. See, the insult, the rebuke, the righteous man striking you so that it would be an oil, a kindness to you, is to call you something other than supernatural. It's assumed in Christ you are living a supernatural, power-filled life. That you are walking in the presence of God. And it should be a slap in the face. Something that jolts you, that shakes you for somebody to say you're acting like any old ordinary fellow. That should make you oh my God, I'm called to so much more than that. I'm supposed to be experiencing so much more than that. The Christian life is supposed to be more. That's why it's used this way. And the Corinthians understood it. These are people with all the spiritual gifts moving in their midst. But because there was backbiting and quarreling and jealousy, he said, you're acting like mere infants. I expected to find something more. And you're acting like an ordinary person. Not what God intended. In Jude, and we'll close with this one, Jude accurately describes the church today. He describes men that are like clouds without rain. Like crops that yield no fruit. Men that do not have the Spirit of God in them. And in Jude verse 19, these are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. In the church, people are supposed to be divinely led, leading supernatural, extraordinary lives. But there will always be an element in the crowd that has never learned to do anything but follow mere natural instincts. And that will cause division. It's like oil and water, small molecules and big. They just can't go together. Because in God, we've got big molecules. We're dreaming big dreams. We're believing the supernatural, extraordinary supernatural things. And it's directly opposed with your natural thoughts. This is where faith comes in. It's where faith is supposed to grow. Incidentally, Jude says these are the same men that changed God's grace into a license for immorality. Isn't that interesting? Paul said another time speaking to Timothy, they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. They look like Christians, but they don't act like Christians. Saints, that's not us. When you leave here, when you look in the mirror, when you think about a task before you, You are an extraordinary person. You are not a normal human. And you know what? It is not arrogant for you to think about what God has called you. And so when you're facing a situation they say it can't be done, you may not say it out loud, but you can think it for you maybe. God's with me. Isn't this the attitude David had? All of Israel hiding. And he says, who's this giant? I'm just a little boy, but I will go out and kill him. Because David didn't see himself as ordinary. You shouldn't either. It does not matter what the devil puts before you. You are not an ordinary human being. You are filled with God's presence. You quote Him. You quote it. All things are possible with God. You know? I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. Have you not quoted that? Not quoted it this week, this year? When are we going to do it? Let's go climb some mountains for Jesus. Let's knock down giants. Let's pull the bow back as far as the bowstring can handle and shoot big for Jesus. So those are bold things.